We do have your Bibles open in turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. As we continue the journey with Jesus to the cross, we arrive at the trial as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and hears those words of the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. Mark's going to come and read to us and then Neil will come to speak. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so. Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was common at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over him to be crucified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As we come to uh, God's word, let's uh, pray for his, his understanding this morning. Jesus said, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Father, we pray this morning that you would enable us to listen to you. Whether there are things that are distracting us, we pray that you would take them away. And as we listen, help us to hear the truth, help us to understand the truth. And help us to live lives according to the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you have made holiday plans for this summer? How many of you made your plans for this summer, last summer? How many of you will book your holiday plans the week before you go? We're all made, I think, with different tendencies to plan. At one extreme, there are those who have everything mapped out to the last detail, with every hour of every day of their holidays accounted for. And there'll be those at the other extreme who, who hate making plans, who want to, to go with the flow, just see how they feel on the day. 
shove a few things in a suitcase and, uh, and off they go. But ultimately, all of us will make some sort of things or plans or we will think about what we would like to do, whether it's for the next 24 years or whether it's for the next 24 hours. Humankind's biggest problem, though, is that we don't include God in our plans. And that's not only unwise, it's actually dishonoring to God. Imagine if you had some friends um, come and stay with you. You can't get the time off work, um, so you leave them at home, leave them with the keys, and they go off to, to work in a normal way. And you come back in the evening, you, you park your car in the drive, and you're a bit surprised to see a skip in the drive. And as you look in the skip, you see your, your record collection in there, which you kept waiting for the day when vinyl would become fashionable again. And uh, as you, you go into the house, you see the kitchen's all been painted pink. And your guests welcome you by saying, well... We decided you needed to declutter your life. We decided you needed a bit of a makeover. Uh, By the way, we've invited some friends around tonight for a bit of a party. I hope you don't mind. You'd be saying probably, hang on a minute, this is this is my my house, this is my house, this is my home. Um, Why didn't you talk to me about this? Why didn't you include me in your plans? Well, we're made by God for the purpose of a relationship with him. He made us. And therefore he knows what is best for us. The trouble is we go ahead and make our plans for our lives and ignore him. In verse 1 of the passage that was read for us in chapter 15, we read very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. This is a Continuation of the story from uh, chapter 14, verse 65, when Jesus appeared before the Jewish leaders in the middle of the night. Remember that farcical trial where they tried to find evidence against him? They couldn't find any, so they got to false witnesses instead. And eventually they asked Jesus the question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus replied, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At which point, instead of seeing whether or not he was saying the truth, they just condemned him of blasphemy and beat him. Well, in verses 66 to 72 that we looked at last week, we're told what is going on in the meantime with, with Peter in the courtyard. But this morning we, we switch back to the trial of Jesus. And here we see how God is working out his plan. It might look like the plans of the religious leaders are, are succeeding, but in actual fact, God is just using them to fulfill his own plans. We also see how two more sets of characters respond to Jesus. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen how various characters were guilty of spiritual blindness in different ways. We saw Judas how his biggest sin was selfishness. He loved money and other things which led him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We saw how the disciples worshipped comfort and safety. So when it came to the moment that Jesus needed them most, they were afraid and deserted him. We saw how the religious leaders loved intellectualism and refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, this morning we're going to look at um, the religious leaders again, 
And they're also going to look at Pilate, the Roman governor of Judah, and a group of Jews who are just described as the crowd. But the first point I want to make from this passage is that human plans are driven by selfish motives and will ultimately fail. Why did the various characters respond in the way they did? What was driving them? The plan of the, the religious leaders was just to get rid of Jesus, wasn't it? It wasn't quite so simple because they were under the authority of the, of the Roman Empire. So they themselves can't sentence someone to death. Only the Roman governor can do that. Which is why we're told here in verse 1, they bound Jesus, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate. But how are they going to convince Pilate to sentence him to death? Because Pilate's not going to be interested in some religious dispute. There's no point telling Pilate he's guilty of blasphemy. But he would be interested if Jesus is some sort of political revolutionary. And so they tell him Jesus has claimed to be the king of the Jews. He could be a political threat to Roman rule. So Pilate asks him direct here in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, You have said so. It's a bit of an ambiguous reply, isn't it? Um, Does he mean, you have said so, but I disagree? It's probably more like, yes, but not as you understand a king. John's account in his gospel is a little more helpful. We're there, we're told Jesus says, my kingdom doesn't belong to this world. In other words, he's not a king who's going to gather his, his forces and rise up against the Romans. He's the ultimate king of the universe. His subjects don't belong to a specific time in history or one specific place, but are from all nations and from all times. His kingdom consists of all those who willingly submit to his rule over their lives. So coming back to the passage, the chief priests then pile in and they accuse him of many things before Pilate. So Pilate again asks Jesus, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. It's almost like he's trying to to help Jesus, isn't it? Maybe he's a bit fed up with these religious leaders. Who, Who knows? But what does Jesus do? Does he, does he demonstrate his innocence? Does he call on a, on a lawyer to, to represent him? No, look what it says. Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Here is someone about to face death. He doesn't seem guilty. He doesn't seem like a, a troublemaker who's going to cause the Romans any problems. The religious leaders are throwing all these accusations against him. And Pilate can probably see through that, but what he can't understand is why he doesn't defend himself. And the answer is, is if he did, God's plan would not succeed. And that was more important than Jesus defending his innocence. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's continue to see what happens next. In verse 6, now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, which was to release a prisoner at a time of a festival. Now, what do we know about Barabbas? Well, often we think Barabbas criminal, 
Jesus innocent? Surely there's no, no contest here. If, if there's a chance to release an innocent man, they're going to go for Jesus, surely. That assumes the crowd are just interested in justice. And Barabbas is, is more than just a common criminal. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told he was a well-known prisoner. We're told here he's taken part in an uprising. He's committed murder. He's more likely to be a popular rebel leader, particularly amongst those who would like to overthrow Roman rule. And against this, you've got Jesus, who's, who's more interested in challenging the, the Jewish leaders than the Roman rulers. And he's not going to take up arms anyway. So the question of innocence is probably not really of interest to the crowd. They're probably more interested in someone who's going to fight for them. And Pilate tries to influence them here. Look, look what he asks them. He says in verse 9, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. He's pretty sure that Jesus is innocent. And he's probably also thinking he's less of a threat to the Romans than Barabbas. But it goes on in verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. It's part of their plan, and it seems to be working. Pilate tries again, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? This is your king, what shall I do with him? Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So what does Pilate do? Pilate released Barabbas to them. Yeah, Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, what have we seen going on here? What is driving these different groups of people to act in the way they do? What is most important for them? Let's look at the religious leaders first of all. Pilate is able to see through them, isn't he? It says in verse 10, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. What is that self-interest? Well, they have significant status, they have power, they want to protect it. Jesus is a threat. So previously they tried to kill him, they haven't yet succeeded. But now they're making plans to do that in a different way. And the problem of the Jewish leaders is they're not listening to Jesus. This is God in front of their eyes. He's teaching from the scriptures. He's, he's healing. He's revealing the truth, but they don't want to hear it. He's not their idea of the Messiah. They are comfortable with their idea of how they can be right with God. And that involves uh, ceremony, involves tradition, involves correct outward behavior rather than the heart of repentance and humility. They may not be enslaved to outward sin, but they're enslaved to their own self-righteousness. Jesus has come to set them free, but they don't want that freedom. They don't have a true relationship with God. They're serving their own interests. And there are many people like that today who outwardly are leading a good life but I don't have that true relationship with God. Well, what about Pilate? Um, he's an interesting character, isn't he? He's, he's not stupid. He sees the, the innocence of Jesus. He knows the religious leaders have got their own agenda. So why doesn't he just release him? Well, he does try to. You know, justice was important to him, but there was something that was more important, wasn't there? 
In verse 15, we're told, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He's not really, deep down, much different from the other religious leaders. What was more important to him was his own position. And that's the irony here. It says he knew that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests handed Jesus over to him. But actually it was out of self-interest that he handed Jesus over to the crowd. He wanted to maintain control. He couldn't risk going against the crowd. He couldn't risk an uprising. And even if his soldiers put it down, you know, word would get back to Rome and his reputation and career prospects would be severely damaged. Pilate appears to be closer to the truth, but fails to submit to it. But what about the crowd? I guess the, the answer is probably in the description, isn't it? They are just called the crowd. And in English, we have the, uh, the expression, follow the crowd, go along with the most widely accepted viewpoint. They are easily led. We're told the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. I'm not sure how. Probably wouldn't have been on the basis of who was innocent. Um, may have been to ridicule Jesus, maybe to betray Barabbas as uh, the tough guy. He's your man, he's your leader. He's going to stand up for you. And so when Pilate asks, what shall he do with Jesus? They all shout, crucify him. When he asks why, what crime has he committed, they they don't answer him. A crowd can't really answer. They just do what a crowd is good at. They shout all the louder, crucify him. People feel safe in a crowd. If you're standing on the other terraces all supporting your team, it feels good to be in a crowd all supporting and cheering together. The trouble is, as Einstein said, if you follow the crowd... You go no further than the crowd. Or as Rick Warren said, if you follow the crowd, you get lost in the crowd. If you're in a crowd which is not following the truth, it is hard, it takes courage to stand against it. There's this photo coming up. Um, we'll show a guy called, uh, who's ringed there, August Landmesser. He refused to do the Nazi salute. He stood against the crowd. And that's why it's hard to be a Christian in the UK today, because you are going against the crowd. But we were made as individuals. We were made each with a responsibility for our own choices. Each with a responsibility for how we will respond to Jesus. We cannot just say, well, I did what everybody else did. We have to decide what is the truth. Jesus said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The question is, are we on the side of the truth? Well, the good news is that although human plans are driven by selfish motives, God's plans are driven by selfless motives and will ultimately Succeed. You may recall the case a few years ago of a young solicitor called Sally Clark, picture coming up of her now. She was wrongly accused of killing her own children and spent three terrible years in prison. 
treated as you expect by those um, who thought she'd committed the worst crime he can, he can think of. Um, and then she was finally acquitted because the, the testimony of the expert witness was deemed unreliable. But she never really recovered from her ordeal. She um, became an alcoholic and died a few years after being released from prison. A terrible miscarriage of justice. Is the conviction, the execution of Jesus, not something comparable with her death? Is it just another tragic miscarriage of justice? And if Jesus is God, then why did he not stop it happening? Why did he not open his mouth and defend himself against the false charges and the injustice that he was experiencing? Well, the reason is that his death was part of God's plan. Let's turn back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 53. A prophecy several hundred years before Jesus came to earth. In the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 742. Have a look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Here it says, it was, yet it was the Lord's will, it was God's plan, in other words, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was the Father's will, and the Son submitted himself voluntarily to the will of the Father. He chose the cross. The only way he could ensure that the plan would be fulfilled is if he remained silent. Have a look at a few verses earlier. It's on the screen. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Twice it says here, he did not open his mouth. This is the person who, in the debates with the Pharisees, ran rings round them. He always had an answer for them when they were trying to catch him out. And yet when Pilate asks him to defend himself, we're told Jesus made no reply. He did not open his mouth. Pilate was looking for any excuse to be able to release him. But Jesus didn't give him any. He knew Jesus was innocent, but Jesus didn't try to be released. Jesus also had the power to resist his arrest. He could, as he said himself, have called down a dozen legion of angels, um, but he chose not to. Because as it says in Matthew, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And that is why in his silence, having all the resources at his disposal that he could have used, but he chooses not to use, He demonstrates the the power of divine love over divine anger. He kept back his anger against this injustice, the sheer evil of what was going on, and he retained his meekness and his majesty. Unlike the motives of, of Judas, the religious leaders, the disciples, Pilate, the crowd, all of which were selfish, Jesus' motives were totally selfless. And this description of Jesus as as silent as a sheep before its shearers 
It's so powerful, isn't it? It demonstrates that complete surrender. He wanted to offer himself perfectly so that we could be redeemed. Because you may be wondering, well, what good did it all do? What good did his death achieve? Why would he allow himself to die and a guilty man like Barabbas to go free? But that is precisely why he did die, so that the guilty could go free. Remember the verse that Wellesley shared with us earlier with the children? In the NIV translation, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty. We are all, by nature, sinful. We all reject God. We all make plans out of self-interest. And so before we're too hard on the religious leaders, we're not much better ourselves. We exclude God from our plans, even though he's the one who made us. We are therefore guilty. We deserve to be punished. And if we weren't punished, then God would not be a just God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus chose to take that punishment for us. The weight of our sin, the weight of our guilt was taken on off or off of us and laid on him. There's a picture coming up of a holiday of us. It was a few years ago when um, um, I was a little bit younger and Ben was certainly a little bit younger, um, about 18 months old, where we climbed um, uh, the Torres del Paine mountain in Chile. He was on my back in that backpack um, all the way to the top. It took about five hours to get to the top. And um, we had three hours to get back down before it got dark. So we were going at quite a pace. And all the way down, I just um, got to the point where I could really not carry him anymore. That weight became so heavy for me. And Liz uh, offered to take him for a while. And as I took that, that weight off, there was this great sense of relief. And that was what it's like when Jesus takes the weight of sin and guilt off of us and takes it himself. He doesn't just take the guilt away. He replaces it with his righteousness. And so when God looks at us now, he sees Jesus and his innocence. He sees us, therefore, as totally innocent. And what this willing substitution of Jesus, as we looked at earlier, substitution of Jesus does, is take away the tragedy and the injustice of the cross. The fact that Jesus voluntarily submitted to crucifixion that he did that out of his love for us means we can rejoice in the triumph of the cross because God's plans succeeded. Later, after Jesus had been raised to life, after he ascended to heaven, his followers received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and Peter stands up in front of another crowd. No doubt on that day there would have been many who... Uh, had also been in the crowd shouting, crucify him. And Peter speaks to them very directly. This is what he says. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, 
and full knowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God achieved his plans through your wickedness and cowardice, he's saying to them, but you are still responsible for your actions. And when the people heard this, they realized their guilt and they wanted to know, what shall we do? And Peter replied to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not too late, he's saying to them. However bad it was, the thing that you did, it's not too late. You can be forgiven. That is what Barty Kratz going to do next week. Profess his faith in Jesus Christ as the true king, the one who went to the cross and gave his life for him so that he could be forgiven and made right with God. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who has understood that sin is about making our own plans about our lives without making any reference to God. But someone who would like to be forgiven, who would like to have the weight of that guilt taken off them, and who would like in future to trust in God's plans, which are for our good. In short, to trust Jesus as their saviour and as their Lord. If that is you, come and have a word with me or Wellesley afterwards. We'd be very pleased to, to speak to you about that. If you've known what it means to be forgiven for some time, then let's rejoice again in the triumph of the cross. Let's rejoice in God's selfless plans. And let's submit all of our plans to his plans. Amen.